Hi guys and welcome back to the Image Junkies podcast, the place for news and documentary filmmakers. You've probably noticed that it's been a while since the last episode and for that I apologise. When I started this podcast I hoped to keep up a weekly schedule, but it's just proven too hard. From now on I'll be aiming to put out maybe an episode every two weeks. Sometimes work commitments mean that it may slip, but that's the plan for now, so do bear with me. There are so many interesting people in our industry and so much to learn that it seems a shame not to try and share as many stories as possible. But I do need to ask you a favour though, I can't do this alone. It would be brilliant if you could share the link for this podcast on your social media. If you find it interesting and helpful, then I'm sure others will too. You can also shout me out on Twitter and Instagram where I'm at Image Junkies with an IES. In today's episode, we meet the brilliant Alex Brechkovsky, a young wildlife researcher and filmmaker. I first met him while filming rhinos being relocated from South Africa to Chad, and I was immediately blown away by his knowledge and enthusiasm. I think you'll feel the same way after listening to this. He's full of great advice and lots of good ideas as how to get started as a wildlife filmmaker. So, Alex, first off, for anyone who doesn't know you, can you just introduce yourself? Uh, whereabouts in the world are you at the minute, and who are you? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm Alex Brechkovsky, and I'm a big cat biologist and more part-time wildlife cameraman. Um, I'm currently based in Brisbane, Australia. I'm in the last sort of 57 days of my PhD. Um, I, I've been working on big cat conservation issues for sort of the last... 10 years or so, and um, I I, I recently finished up uh, filming a uh, National Geographic Wild show on uh, the tree climbing lines of southwestern Uganda. Brilliant. I I saw some of your Instagram stories around uh, collaring some of those lions, those tree climbing lions, and it was absolutely brilliant. Probably one of the best Instagram stories I've seen in a while. Um, was, Was that just for your personal account, or did National Geographic use that as well? Um, I, I'm, I'm quite lucky. So I, I have access to uh, the National Geographic Wild account and um, sort of the general rule with that is if, if you have made a film for them, then you can contribute to the account whenever pretty much you want. So um, I've been quite privileged in that way that I've been able to make content for both my own feed and then obviously theirs. Brilliant. And how do you, because I'm quite interested, because like I say, it was one of the best Insta stories I've ever seen. And I'm quite fascinated by the process of making Insta stories. How, what's your, what's your thought process when you get something like that? I mean, for anyone who's not seen it, essentially Alex uh, and, and his colleague are following uh, a tip off about some lions. Uh, in, in, you, you were in the bush in Uganda, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were, we were in the Queen Elizabeth National Park. Um, right on the uh, eastern Congolese border. Brilliant. And and in this story, Alex does a great job of sort of building the tension as they go looking for these lions and, and eventually find them. I mean, Alex, can you give us an idea of, of your thought process with something like that? Like, are you immediately thinking, oh, yes, this is going to make a great Instagram story? Or does it just kind of happen organically as you're there? What's your what's your plan with with something like that? Yeah, I mean, I've I've always had some um, sort of really good sort of models to um, base a lot of my work on. So I find that Charlie Hamilton James from National Geographic magazine, his Insta stories are really good. 
Uh, Bertie Gregory's stories are really good from, uh, he shoots a lot for Natio Wild and uh, he's done a lot of online series. So I, I've sort of learned a little bit from them, but it's just really practice. And then obviously I've got the um, incredible advantage of having a species that's uh, one quite sort of uh, cool to film and everybody can relate to you and everybody loves big cats. But then two, I've also got this um, incredible um, sort of privilege to because I'm a conservation practitioner and conservation biologist, I, I'm often working on the cats themselves. So I'm, I'm physically doing the collaring myself with uh, a team of vets and um, wildlife conservation staff um, from the Again Wildlife Authority. So I've got kind of this um, sort of unrestricted access in a way. So, so in, a, in a way, having the, the storytelling background obviously helps a little bit, but um, I am quite lucky. Yeah, I mean, and that really comes across on on your on your Instagram stories, and and in terms of your sort of you know quote unquote proper films, you know, putting that in air quotes because I think things like Insta stories are proper films, but you know what I mean, films for broadcast. Um, what what sort of things have you been working on with that? Was it the same project? Yeah, so so um, we had a we had a film that aired in December in the United States, and then more broadly around the world. Um, sort of between then and, and sort of February, March. And, and actually in South Africa now, it's, it's still on DSTV. It's called Tree Climbing Lions. And um, that was a, a, a little one-hour special, um, basically tracking my journey to count uh, the last of Uganda's lions in the southwest of the country. And what quickly sort of started as a, a really a story about, um, about the science of counting big cats, it, it quickly evolved into trying to get footage of these lions that have this incredible culture of uh, climbing these trees, uh, both in the north and in the south of the reserve. And then it evolved yet again into more of a conservation story because, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the animals that I was filming got poisoned or they got snared. So um, it, was this, it was this nice blend of um you know conservation science and sort of action and adventure. Yeah, yeah. a bit of, bit of drama by the sounds of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it was also um, it was also uh, very much a, uh, you can call it a bit of a ghetto production in the in the sense that I was trying to balance fieldwork and uh, sort of conservation work with trying to make a film uh, in a in an incredibly small uh, Suzuki Jiminy, which I do not recommend to anybody. <laughs> yeah, not easy. Well, well, that that kind of leads me on then to the next question, which is how how do you go about doing something like that? I mean, were you having to film it all your yourself, or were you part of a, a bigger filming team? Yeah, so I I, uh, I was the DOP on the on the um, production. So I, I shot a camera. Um, I, I shot a lot of the natural history footage. I shot a lot of the drone footage, um, and then I had a really skilled uh, cameraman uh, called Luke Osh from Durban, and um, he helped me with a lot of the filming. Sort of when I wasn't at the study site, uh, he did a lot of the interviews. He also helped me shoot with some of the landscape uh, drone photography. And then I was very lucky to have Steve Winter join me for about uh, sort of 17 days. So for those um, people listening, Steve Winter's a photographer for National Geographic magazine, and he's actually the man who sort of gave me my break. I, I was uh, one of his photo assistants in 2014, and. Um, sort of I learned a lot of the techniques and skills um, <clears throat> and just the sort of general um, sort of way around a camera from him. So I, I had him come out for 17 days to shoot some of the still photography. Oh, brilliant. And, and so was that a National Geographic commission or did you just do it off your own back and, and see how it went? 
No, no. So, so we managed to negotiate a deal with National Geographic Wild. Um, the, the only piggybacking was sort of my PhD. So I was going up there to, to do my field work for this lion survey um, and also look at conflict between uh, the lions, the spotted hyenas and leopards that eat people's livestock. So that was all going to be part of my PhD field work. And the, the film was almost like a bonus. I mean, we managed to negotiate that a couple of months before I went up. And um, it also turned out quite fortuitous um, because, um, yeah, just, just, just the timing. But at the same time, it was obviously very tricky to try and do both things, but we, we managed to pull it off. Yeah, I imagine that was uh, difficult. I mean, what's, given the sort of um, how much you were trying to do at the same time, what, what kit were you using? It must have been difficult to find the right kit that, that's easily, uh, that you could easily carry while still trying to do your conservation work. Yeah, so uh, the, the good thing was is that a lot of the filming was done from a vehicle. I actually had a, a really good friend of mine, uh, Matthew Myhill. He produced this um, incredible little contraption filming door that um, so I'd actually remove the, the door from my small Suzuki Jimny and then basically we would mount this almost like little filming cage on the side and I would basically strap my uh, I had a little um, I think it was a little 506 um, Manfrotto tripod uh, and basically I would just shoot off a red uh, on that uh, a little I had a red dragon and then I had a red epic helium oh wow uh, so pretty serious AK case. sensor yeah, and then um, and then all the other stuff was sort of a combination from everything from Sony A7S II for a lot of the interior camera work. We used this, uh, a Canon 5D Mark uh, IV for a lot of the interviews, again, rolling inside the vehicle as I was sort of um, following the lines. And then just a lot of GoPro, GoPro stuff. And then obviously for the drones, uh, one of the one of the coolest things about the show, I think, um, from the photographic perspective was the shots of the lions in the trees both the still photography and the um the video that we shot with a small mavic a mavic pro um so over over the course of about three months i slowly habituated um several prides of lions to the presence of a drone one particular one in the south and i could get to within sort of 30 centimeters of a of a lion's head and, and sort of get very get very intimate perspectives of, of lions and trees that no one's ever gotten before so um yeah that was very cool and how how did the lions respond to the drone i mean do you think they thought it was some sort of bird like what do you think their thought process was around the drone i, I mean i was uh, sort of I, well one the craziest thing was uh, so i i got extremely excited the first day i actually saw a pride of lions in the trees and obviously i flew the drone and crashed it on the, on the first day trying to do like an orbit around the trying to do I, I did a lot of these orbit orbiting moves uh in the actual canopy of the tree and, and just to get sort of these these smooth tracking shots and it's actually incredible um how even from that first iteration of that dgi pro that um, that mavic pro how how stable those those drones were um but but you know to answer your question about how the lions responded i mean this particular pride you know, I found that if I flew the drone maybe 100 meters from them and then slowly advanced over time, they got very relaxed to the point where literally it was, um, you know, 30 or 40 centimeters from their head. But obviously, I had to get a, a special permit from the Ugandan Wildlife Authority to be able to do that. And um, 
just a hell of a lot of patience and uh, more importantly, uh, two gimbals uh, that I went through before I actually managed to get some really good shots that I crashed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess that's an important message for anyone listening, isn't it? That unless you're a real expert on this stuff and you've got the right paperwork, probably don't try filming lions with a drone unless you really know what you're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You risk get it. You risk. You risk getting it confiscated. I mean, drone laws are kind of changing uh, across the African landscape. I mean, in some places they're legal. So I know Kenya has just changed their drone laws. I'm pretty sure you can just bring a drone into the country after they they had a ban for a considerable time. Yeah. I know Botswana's got a got a ban on. Um, I know Botswana's got a ban on drones. Um, I think South Africa's fairly fairly malleable as long as it's of a certain size and it's not commercial but then obviously uganda and uganda they they are legal but um, they need to be registered so you can't just rock up they'll they'll confiscate them uh okay now that's really important i think for a lot of people listening um i mean in south africa it's it's like you say in fact you're spot on if you're not using them for commercial purposes it's it's fairly relaxed um, but the minute, you know, if I put one up for, for say, my, my commercial work, let's say BBC work, then immediately that's classed as commercial work and I need all the various bits of paperwork. So you're right, it's, it's a bit of a grey area, but potentially, you know, I could get sort of hit with a big fine by the CAA, you know, without all the right papers. So it's, it's a real minefield across the whole continent, isn't it? Yeah, 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 definitely. Um... Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel for filmmakers. You know, it's um, it's difficult. Africa is a is a difficult place to to you know to do filmmaking, especially if you're you know rolling really big pieces of equipment and uh, big teams. You know, it, it, it obviously always. I mean, you know better than anybody else. I mean, you've worked extensively across across the continent, and um, you know, I, I think the amazing thing, and I think you'll probably agree with me, is that, you know, because technology is moving so quickly and, and because it's so small, I remember when, when we were together in in um, in the Cape, when we were in Port Elizabeth together in Addo, uh, and you had your, you literally had, you had such a small rig, you had like two lenses and you had a little Sony or something and you shot that whole thing on, on, on the rhinos with that. Yeah, although in fairness, that was a bit, a bit of a nightmare. I kind of um, regretted not having a decent zoom lens for that, for that story, especially when it started raining and all my kit got wet. So I learned a valuable lesson on that trip. But, um, <laughs> but you're right, the kit is definitely getting smaller. And even now, I mean, I've got a, a second camera I carry now for exactly that sort of thing, which is a Sony Z90. And even with that, I can still fit everything into a, into a small suitcase and, and pass myself off as a tourist if I have to, you know. It's amazing how quickly things have changed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, if if I'm not mistaken, I think Panasonic. It's not the GH5. That's it's the one above it. Um, I think they they already. I think if I'm not mistaken, they're already the capability of the camera. I think is already a 5K frame grab, right. and that thing is is barely barely the size of a 5D Mark IV. You know, it's it's, it's such a small camera. To be shooting at such a high resolution, um, yeah, it's pretty incredible what these cameras can do now. Yeah, no, it really is amazing. And I mean, I hate to head back to Kit, but I, I, I know a lot of listeners are quite fascinated by Kit. I mean, what sort of lenses would you have to be using for, for the sort of shoots you were doing? Presumably, obviously, in the car, a wide-angle lens. But what sort of lengths are you looking at when you're trying to film the lions? 
Yeah, the, the, the lens, well, I, I had a, a pretty unique advantage um, because I was shooting with the red Epic uh, Helium. The, the nice thing with that, obviously this has some limit, limitations in terms of how deep you can punch in, but obviously um, you, can, you can, because of the crop factor on that sensor, because it's an 8K sensor, um, if you're shooting in 4K, you know, your, uh, the lens that I was using was a 28 to 300. The reason I used that lens is because I, I wanted to very quickly get a wide angle shot of the lines in the trees and then be able to punch in and get a very tight and medium shot of their faces and just them in the, in the branches of the big euphorbia trees and the big fig trees in the south. So for that reason, I used that lens. And I think that's a F4 to F5.6. It's a, it's a Canon. Um, and, and obviously, as I say, with the advantage of, of having the, the red, I could just sort of toggle between shooting between four and sort of 6K, depending on the um, focal length that I wanted to get in my frame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's brilliant. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think that's one of the main reasons a lot of people like shooting 4K at the minute, isn't it? Because even if they're delivering in 1080, it gives them that ability to punch in in the edit. You know, you almost don't need to shoot your covering shots. You can almost just keep your shot a bit wider and then punch in when you edit. The, the only thing that I think where that is a little bit limited is I think there's, there's two things. One is obviously the, the ISO limitations of some of those cameras. So ironically enough, I think the Panasonics and Sonys, I think they are just in league of their own. Even the Reds can't really compete I mean, the, the, the Reds have got a new little, um, uh, I think they call it a OPL or PL um, low light. Um, it's almost like a little filter that you put on the front of the camera just to give you um, an extra stop or two. Um, but, but typically, you know, you can't really push those Reds past, I think, about 12,000 ISO. I know the Sony A7S II, you know, which already is quite an outdated camera. I mean, that thing was still clean at about 30,000. Amazing, isn't it? Absolutely so, amazing. So, so in terms of punching in, the only issue is obviously the just the quality of your glass. So, um, so, so yeah, yeah. And also, I guess focus. Like uh, <laughs> you think you're in focus until you punch right in on a six K image, and suddenly you think, oh, it's not as sharp as I thought. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, look, it's. I mean, I I cannot believe. I mean, there's uh, there's um, a couple uh, who shoot a lot of uh, films for Nat Geo Wild, um, Russell McLaughlin and um, his his wife uh, Sh Shannon Benson, and um, they I've seen some of their frame grabs from the the red helium, and it's just it's out of this world, man. I mean, I mean to give you an idea, I don't know if you know this, but um, and this is something that the listeners at home will will find fascinating. So Tim Lehman who's a long-standing National Geographic magazine photographer, is actually uh, a pretty incredible wildlife cameraman who shoots pretty regularly for the likes of the BBC, Netflix. You know, he's contributed to the new um, Our Planet and Planet Earth 2 series. And ironically enough, he actually shot uh, moving images for, for the BBC and for Netflix and then doubled up all of those, basically took that footage, um, and just sent it to National Geographic and got a magazine story out of it. So he literally got a two-for-one deal with that red, and he basically said the only thing that you've got to really start thinking about is um, as long as your shutter speed is above 150, then you, are, then you are good. You can start to pull because there's no motion blur. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible. I had a quite a long conversation with him when we went for a jog together in Washington, and I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I've, I've seen the images. I mean, they're pin sharp. I mean, it's unreal. Yeah, no, I, I think that's going to start happening more and more, isn't it? As as video resolution gets so high, you know, why, why would you bother sort of shooting stills if your resolution is that good? I think I think a lot of the um, fashion photographers in the you know places like New York with, with those big um, catwalk um, sort of shoots. I think that's exactly what they're doing. I think I think the the, competi- the, the competition is so intense, and the the product deliverables that the guys have to deliver are just so. Um, I think I think it's just there's just the people are so good that they that they are having to double up like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that makes makes a lot of sense. Um, and I was going to ask, what's what's kind of your plans now then? So you're in Australia finishing your PhD. What's What are you hoping to do after that? So um, I, I'm, I'm headed back to Uganda um, to try and, and, and sort of uh, look at doing lion conservation work in the country with the Ugandan Wildlife Authority and supporting some of their um, activities in a more... Um, active and, and intensive way. So um, at this stage, you know, I, I think that um, the uh, a lot of the strategies around big cat conservation in the country are not really science-driven. So I'll give you an example. The African leopard, for example, they, up until some of the survey work that uh, I did with uh, the team over there in two protected area systems, in the Lake Mburu National Park and in the Queen Elizabeth National Park on the Congolese border, there'd never been a formal assessment of the species. Yet in Uganda, they are trophy hunted. They're not trophy hunted with a very high intensity, but they are exploited. And also there's a hell of a lot of conflict between leopards and and, and uh, livestock farmers. So, um, yeah, I want to take the, the skills that I've learned sort of over the last few years uh, doing science and, and try and just engage in some capacity building and train some really good young Ugandans in, in, in conservation science. And, and, and then obviously, you know, my dream is to try and make a series about, about that. You know, I want to try and um, do sort of an online series and then also maybe uh, something for, for one of the, the channels, whether it's Nat Geo Discovery or something about, about this whole ideology of trying to save lions in Africa and, and how there's just so many places in Africa where we have so little information on, on, you know, which is arguably one of the best studied species uh, on the continent. Um, so that's my dream. I want to try and sort of fuse the two. I know it's very difficult, but um, I, I think that we can sort of bring across a, a film product that will be both engaging and um, sort of shot in a way that hasn't been done before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if there's any producers listening uh, with a lot of money burning a hole in their pocket, you should get in touch with Alex straight away. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, be, before we wrap up, Alex, I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Really, um, I'm sure a lot of people listening probably would like to kind of you know get into wildlife filming, the sort of things that you're doing. It seems to me mm. that a lot of people in your in your area of expertise come from uh, more of a conservation and science based background, and then get into filming almost as a necessity or an afterthought. Is, is that the sort of best route, you think? Rather than being a filmmaker who kind of likes wildlife, you're better to be a specialist and then who starts filming. Is that, is that a fair assessment? You know what? I, I don't know. I, I, think, I think I don't know if you need to be. You know, I, think, I think you know, we're seeing, especially from the, the likes of um, the British um, 
uh, cameraman. I mean, there's some absolutely incredible talent coming out of Bristol. I mean, uh, that's where the natural history unit is. And, uh, you know, we're seeing some absolute guns, uh, you know, young, young cameramen uh, and women. Um, you know, the likes of Hector Skevington, um, Bertie Gregory, um, Sophie Darlington. There's just so many really good camera people. Um, but to give you an idea, you know, the, those BBC camera bursaries, um, you know, it's something like 300 applications one person gets in. You know, they're incredibly intensive. The best advice I have for anyone that wants to pick up a camera and, and, and is quite intent on the filming uh, side of things is he just wants to do wildlife filming, like wants to either be like a wildlife presenter. I think the whole idea of being a wildlife presenter in itself is a, just a very difficult thing. I think you should try and learn to tell stories first and then, and then the whole wildlife being on camera, that's a, that's a byproduct. Trying to just develop yourself into a on-camera personality is an incredibly difficult thing. I think, um, the good, the good news is, is that I think in today's world, there has never been a clearer path, for example, to become a National Geographic magazine photographer or a National Geographic wild cameraman. And the, the answer is very simple. Like they have a very good, very streamlined grant process, which anybody can apply for online. Um, you know, if you've got a really good story idea, if you've got a really good science project, a good conservation project, I encourage everyone out there listening to go into National Geographic just type it into Google, uh, colon grants, and there's a massive grant portal. They, they hand out anything from about five to uh, $100,000 at a time. Obviously, it's very competitive. Uh, you're talking about, a, I think, about a success rate of about 8%. But nonetheless, the opportunity is there. And the incredible thing is once you get that grant, so for instance, when I got my early career grant, which is a, a very small chunk of money, but it's what comes with that. So it's about the fact that you're now part of this National Geographic Explorer family and the fact that you can set up a meeting with Kathy Moran uh, or one of the big photo editors at the magazine, you can physically do that. You can show them your pictures. Like the, the, the process once you are in the building is much more straightforward. Um, so there is a, there is a natural pathway, you know, like if you, if you, if you think about where Nick Nichols was, you know, Nick Nichols, arguably National Geographic magazine's most uh, incredible wildlife photographer ever, you know, along with the likes of maybe Steve Winter, you know, uh, he got rejected by the magazine for eight years. Chief editor told him, go and be a banker, bro. Go and be a lawyer. Your pictures are no good, buddy. And he kept going. He kept pushing. He kept pulling. And look at the guy. Before he retired, he was editor at large of the National Geographic magazine. You know, so, and and if you just look at him, you know, he's got those iconic images. He was the he did the the last like to me, which is the most standout lion story that was ever done by the magazine. He trained up a bunch of incredible assistants. You know, he's got a uh, the, his protege Ronan Donovan has now taken sort of uh, the reins of a lot of the mammal photography, and he's running wild across Africa and Asia, doing some incredible stuff on chimpanzees, gorillas. You know, so you know the the the, the path is is straightforward. And then, you know, obviously, if you if you want to do more on the science and conservation stuff, you know, then those doors are also very open. You know. Uh, you know, it, it could be something as simple as doing a national uh, diploma in nature conservation or it could be a BSc in zoology. But I think, you know, today is, the, you know, today in today's world is, is definitely the time to be doing this stuff. Brilliant. 
Well, I think I think that's a really upbeat way to finish the interview, Alex, and I think that'll give people a lot of information and a and a lot of hope actually that they they might be able to follow in your footsteps one day. So thanks for that. So I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that interview as much as I enjoyed conducting it. I think Alex is a great guy and he's got loads of great information there. I'll put the link to his Instagram page and website in the show notes, so do check that out. And I'm sure he will gladly take any questions you might have. Okay, so that wraps it up for today. But guys, do keep in touch. Let me know if you're interested in being interviewed for the podcast and what you'd like to talk about, because I'm always looking for new and interesting people to talk to and learn from. I'm at Image Junkies with an I-E-S. Check out the website, imagejunkies.net, and I will speak to you hopefully in a couple of weeks. Cheers, guys. Take care.